Good day, gentlemen. Now, in today's video, I'm going to be deconstructing and analyzing this little phrase, which you may have heard thrown around uh, on the internet, which is, the juice ain't worth the squeeze. So in order to pull this apart, we're gonna have to look at what is the juice and what does the squeeze involve? Welcome to the Natural Lifestyles Podcast with your hosts, James Marshall and Liam McRae, where we will be diving deep into the issues of modern masculinity, seduction, dating, lifestyle design, sexuality, psychedelics, you name it. This is the Natural Lifestyles Podcast. So most of the time uh, when you hear this phrase used, it's not referring to your career, right? It's not saying, oh, well, it's not worth studying, interning, working your way up in a corporation in order to fulfill your career, even though there's a lot of squeeze that goes on in that. People don't say that's not worth it. Or in terms of many other things, whether it's your hobbies or your fitness or your your health in general, financial pursuits in terms of investments and so on, it would be rare for people to say it's, it's not worth a squeeze. Now, there's definitely kind of doomers and various people who perceive that the, in general, the system out there is not to your advantage and it's not worth involving yourself in. But this phrase is almost exclusively used in, in relationship to women. It's spoken about in, in relation to two primary things, the art of learning how to approach women, right? So that the amount of, of effort that is involved in order to go from someone who has never really cold approached, doesn't really know how that works, to going out on the streets, in cafes, in bars, wherever it is that you choose to do it, learning the skills in order to be able to meet women that you don't know, strangers, get them into good conversations, ask them out on dates and for them to say yes and for you to end up going on dates, getting into bed with them and then getting into some kind of relationship. So this is the first part where we're, we're describing this it ain't worth the squeeze thing is in relationship to approaching and getting good at cold approach seduction in general. And the second area that is spoken about because uh, we see this whenever we put up some of our more sexy videos about BDSM or bedroom skills in general. These ones tend to go a little bit more viral because they're a bit spicy. You know, when you see spanking and ropes, people click on it. It's not coincidence that we put those up. You know, people are interested. But then this goes outside the TNL bubble usually, right? So we have our core audience. And then when something goes a little bit viral, we're getting guys from the peripheries. And this is where we often see, again, this statement that it's not worth the squeeze. And in this case, we're referring to your abilities in the bedroom. So when you see a, a long form video where I'm explaining the intricacies of 18 different types of spanks and 14 different ways to tie a girl up with a piece of silk, some guys would look at that and go, wow, that's awesome and interesting and I want to learn that and I can see some benefits in that. And then the other attitude would be, ah, it's not worth a squeeze because then I have to learn all that stuff and that's putting all of this extra effort into my you know, bedroom skills. Again, it ain't worth the squeeze. So let's, let's pull this apart and see if it is or isn't. My thesis, just as a spoiler alert, is that it is worth the effort. And not only is it worth the effort, it's necessary. We're not talking about hobbies here. The difference between being a guy who can play a bit of ragtime on the piano, you know, hit some chords and sing along with a, an easy song, and a guy that, or gal or whoever, that is a concert level pianist is massive, massive differences. You know, the, the ability to plink out some chords and sing along is something that someone could develop over a period of weeks or months, depending on their natural abilities. But in order to be able to play some huge concerto, uh, you have to spend eight plus hours a day for many years in order to be able to do it. So the difference in the squeeze is huge in terms of being competent to being a master. And you could say, well, I could live without being a master pianist. I could live without playing the piano at all. And you would be right because you could find some other hobby that you were more interested in or that gave you more joy. And your life, your quality of life would not necessarily be discernibly different from whether you played the piano or not. 
This is not the case with women dating, seduction and sex for most people. Most men and women can't live happy, fulfilling lives without the opposite sex in their life in some way, without having a good sex life. It's just one of the realities of being a biological human is we're attracted to each other and we have a whole lot of things that we need from each other in order to feel fulfilled. And if you're a man who doesn't have the access or the skill set to be able to bring enough or any women into your life or enough or any sex into your life, then your life is not going to be much fun or it's going to be way less joyful than it could be. So the way I see it is kind of regardless of what is the level of squeeze that we need to use, you kind of need to learn it one way or another because the alternative is, you know, black pill doomerism or being an incel and committing to that as an ideology. I'm not here to shame or make fun of anyone who doesn't have much sexual or any sexual experience. And I know there's a lot of that out there on the internet, you know, when incels are kind of a joke in and of themselves, brought up in disdainful ways, cruel ways, often like kind of victim blaming ways. That's because they're something, something, it's their fault that they're undateable. And I don't perceive that at all. I see that like the sexual marketplace uh, is a complex dynamic. There are people who have massive advantages and massive disadvantages. There are people who lucked into being in social scenes or having mentorship, which meant that they learned how to do this early on. And so it becomes part of their, you know, part of their confidence, part of their lifestyle, part of the thing that they just do. And for many men, that doesn't happen because of isolation, because of the fact that they were shy, because they didn't have any older brothers to show them or older sisters or women in their life in general to get used to being around women because they were uh, because of computer games because of the internet because of the atomization of societies in general i think it's unhelpful to blame these kinds of things on one big monolithic cause the most common one being talked about here is feminism you know just like this one word that covers all the ills and all the problems that men face is because of this massive power of the feminist movement I think this is quite reductive and doesn't take into account many of the other factors that have changed societies and changed dating, the mating dating game in the, you know, in the recent years. Like, I mean, I can see massive differences in the last 10 to 15 years, and then there are huge differences over broader periods of time, again, mainly to do with economic changes, societies adjusting and becoming far more insular atomized so that we don't have such links to community going out to parties being part of community events having extended networks where historically most people met their met their partners right even when i was growing up in the 90s man that was the situation where there was no internet to speak of there was no online dating there was no instagram there was guys and girls trying to fucking fuck each other one way or another and so that happened in usually in response to proximity, right? So being around each other in class, at parties, you know, at raves, early 90s raves, um, you know, at house parties, hooking up through friends, being introduced to each other by friends of friends, all that kind of stuff. That's how it was done because there was no other alternative. A lot of that stuff exists. I mean, it still exists, of course. People live in communities. People have friends. People still uh, statistically more often hook up through their social networks than they even do through online. Although of course, online has become far more prevalent in the last 10, 15 years or so. But the realities are, it's not that the, you know, the juice ain't worth the squeeze. It's just that the squeeze has changed to what we have to do in order to be able to be competent, to be able to get dates, to be able to get a girlfriend. Or if you're one of, one of us, someone who wants to date multiple women, 
then, okay, we have to adjust and shift our squeezing techniques as the times change. And if we don't, then what are you left with? You're left with a statement that is, I would say, a victim statement and one that just allows you to bow out of the race, right? It's not worth the effort because the Chads and the Stacys, because everything's stacked against you, because there is this massive disparity in, let's say, sexual wealth. It's not a secret that wealth is not distributed evenly throughout the planet, right? Some people are extremely wealthy and some people are extremely poor. Sometimes that's because they work real hard. Sometimes it's because their daddy worked real hard or their daddy's daddy worked real hard or, you know, many other factors at play that are not, it's not that we're all dropped on the monopoly board with the same amount of money, the same positions. And then it's, it's only a meritocracy. Of course, there are factors at play that give people advantages economically. And this translates fairly well as an analogy over into the sexual marketplace where there are people who are, you know, born with their daddy and mummy's good genes uh, so they're super hot or jacked or tall or of a particular race, which is deemed to be more attractive than others and so on. And so, you know, there's certain advantages that the Chads and the Stacys have over the normies or the normal guys or, or as the black pillars would or, or the incel people would speak of the sub five, which I think is a, a very unuseful definition of men, which kind of talks about a number of different factors that if you are not this tall, if you are of the wrong race, if you are not jacked, if your jawline is not of a particular way and so on, that you are essentially undateable, that you fall into this lower 20 to 40 or 50% of attractiveness males. And by the ideologies that are, that have formed around within the pickup world and the, the manosphere at large states that essentially there's, there's no way you can move beyond that. Like you, you, the die is set. You are a five, you are a four, and therefore you will never be able to date a seven, an eight, a nine, unless you become exorbitantly rich and you can basically buy our attention. Otherwise, the juice ain't worth the squeeze because the juice that you get is unattractive women and the amount of squeeze you have to put in, the endless amounts of swiping and flaking numbers, and or if you are one of the few guys that goes and does cold approach, dealing with the many rejections that are in- inevitable, that all of that effort in order to get some box, as I've heard people refer to it, or to, you know, get laid or to spend a few minutes with a woman in bed, like these kinds of phrases, like why would we put all this effort into it when women are essentially, what's that thing from um, that, that line from the Mighty Boosh with like all women, strange and evil. We'll cut to that one there, despite what my editors like, no more Mighty Boosh. My wife was like all women, strange and evil. Mighty Bush. Before recording this video, I was having a look at a bunch of different statistics. Now, you know me and mathematics. I'm not the, not the guy that you want to come to for all your mathematical <laughs> needs. But, you know, I'm aware of these stats of like, well, firstly, where are the places in the world where people have more sex and less sex, right? So if we look on the averages, apparently the Turks uh, are the horniest and naughtiest of all of us, which has kind of surprised me. Um, that they're around 14.5 partners, lifetime partners, I think, for males. And then second in place, who, who would have guessed? Good old fucking Australia, 13.3 chicks. That's what apparently we get. And then, you know, you've got those Scandinavian countries and they go down uh, in various countries. So there's somewhere between, you know, seven to 14 partners, depending on which country you come from, on average, that the, that most men will have in their, in their lifetime. And fairly comparable for women, usually a few less. Now, of course... Who's telling the truth? We don't know because often men do inflate their numbers. Women may choose to not count certain guys. I've, I've talked to many girls about that. She's like, oh, no, that guy didn't count because the sex was bad or he only lasted three minutes or I didn't like him or I was a bit drunk and so I just kind of forget about it. So 
Hard to know exactly how many people everyone is actually having sex with, but in terms of self-reporting, this is what it looks like. And when you look at that, you'll be like, okay, dozen or so partners. And so you could say maybe a few of those would be long-term partners and one of them maybe would be the long, long long-term partner and a few flings and a couple of one-night stands. And okay, that seems kind of reasonable for an average person to... Let's assume that they're not only having sex once per person. So that it's not that they're just having sex 14 times in their life, which wouldn't be enough as far as I would be concerned. But okay, that they're having multiple sexual impressions with many of those different people. And so that blows out to a certain number of sex over your lifetime. Okay, fair enough. But it's an average, right? So what that means, I would say, now don't quote me on the stats here, but there's going to be some people who hoard the sex. And so I, I and I, me, <laughs> and a number of men that I've met throughout my career, professional pickup artists or guys who are just extremely good with women or guys who put in huge amounts of squeezing have clocked, you know, a hundred women plus in their lifetime. So they've, they've slept with that many women. And I know those guys and many of the time, often it's not just once either. So, okay. So they're having hundreds of or thousands of sexual impressions in their life. And so that stands to reason if there's one guy who's having sex with a hundred different girls, but then that's taking away all of his sex from lots of other guys. So, that, so on their other outlier end, there must be lots of guys who have no sex or, or once or very, very little sex. Now, There is a problem with that idea too, which is that sex is not a finite resource, right? A woman doesn't have a a limited number of times she could have sex. She could be one of the women that sleeps with the Chad or, and like Chad doesn't, doesn't in no way reflect the guys that I know that have, have slept with over a hundred women. Not one of them that I know is like six foot four, jacked, looks like a GQ model. None of them. I mean, you know, some of them of my colleagues, skinny, bit fat, bit short, okay looking with a huge nose, uh, you know, or one ear, um, you know, like, we're not, not, not like freaks or anything, but just like average looking men. If you lined up all the dudes I knew who've been with over a hundred women, it would be a fairly unimpressive lineup visually, right? The, maybe the cheerleader effect, if we all dressed cool and did our poses, which we often did in our photos, that might affect things, but we're kind of average. I mean, generally average in terms of visual metrics, but it wasn't that okay, because any of us slept with many women that that woman then never slept with a guy that hasn't slept with a hundred women, right? It's certainly I've seen guys who are proficient with women kind of hold together a harem of women over a shorter period of time. So let's say that they're dating two, three to five women. And if you're, if you're dating that, that means seeing them once a week, because like for the most part, if you're having a casual relationship, the woman is going to want to see you around once a week minimum. And if you've spent, you know, you don't see her for many, many weeks, then she'll go, she'll lose interest and she'll find someone else to either have a casual thing or have a more serious thing with. You might be the guy that she's like the occasional pop-in guy where she keeps you on her, on her Rolodex as like, not, not particularly reliable as a dude, but reliable dick when I need it. And, you know, I'll contact him every now and then. Cool. That kind of thing happens. But if you're trying to see a, you know, have a girl in your life, you need to see her once a week, once every 10 days ish. Um, otherwise she'll get bored. So within that time period, a player may be juggling three to five women and, you know, they may be interchanging. A new girl comes in, a previous girl gets sick of it or gets a boyfriend or something changes. So there might be some rotation happening, but that guy c- could pull three to five women out of the sexual market for a period of months. It's not like the chads or whatever 
they're not like they're not Mughal emperors or Chinese emperors. They don't have a hundred women locked in a locked in a palace where that that's their exclusive harem. They have women that they hold to them. Is it just by their like excellent jawline? No, I'd say much more. It's to do with what the main purpose of this video is: is their sexual abilities, right? Like if a woman is sexually satisfied with a man, he is way better than the average man in bed. Then she will return to him, and she will often allow a greater margin of error on the man's behalf so he can be have less good game and he can she will often put up with less commitment or less reliability you know she, she will see him as like okay he's not he can't be shaped into a boyfriend he's not going to be a good boyfriend maybe she might delude herself and the guy might delude her which is not something i recommend but that this happens but even if she's kind of aware like he's a player or he has a single lifestyle or he's a polyamorist He's a guy that doesn't want to be with just one woman, whatever that looks like. Then she will clock that sooner than later. And if she chooses to re-engage with that guy, it'll primarily be a sexual thing. So she may continue that relationship, this casual, looser relationship, knowing that she's not the only one for a period of, in my experience, around six months. I haven't really seen like open casual relationships. I've seen the occasional outlier. Johnny Soporno would be a good example. He's been with his partner for many many years and they've had an open thing forever but they're like card carrying hardcore polyamorous like most most casual relationships i've seen last around the three to six months mark which is at the point where usually the woman if, if she's really into the guy you know decides she would like something else with him he's not able to accommodate it or she's kind of using him as a stopgap you know a good reliable lay but not much else or maybe a friend with benefits until such a time as she finds a guy that's like, cool, this guy is boyfriend material and wants to do that. And cool, I'll jump ship from the player, jump out of the, the uh, temporary harem and then become a, someone's girlfriend. The problem with the idea that, you know, Chad's or the alphas or whatever are hoarding all the sex presumes that there is a, there is a finite amount of sex that a woman can only have sex with one man at a time or in general, uh, when that may not be the case. She may be sleeping with several of those types of guys. She may be having a, like easing into a more serious relationship with a guy whilst keeping her side piece until the last possible moment. And, and men do this too, right? Cause I like, I know when I speak about these kinds of things, they can be triggering. Cause it's like, it brings up male insecurities. It, it brings up male judgment of women, right? That ha like that they're having sex with more than one man and that makes them whatever sluts, promiscuous, easy, the death of Western civilization, all, all of these extrapolations when it's like, okay, men and women fuck each other. When there are, you know, like in previous generations where there was heavy pressure, societal pressure to get married before you had sex, right, which has existed in many, many different cultures, whether they were Abrahamic religions or Hindu or various other religions and cultural contexts throughout history, which kept uh, control over female and male sexuality, actually, kind of equally. And then the outlet was within socially sanctioned marriages, which happened very young, right? We all know this. When did your grandparents get married? My dad got married at 23. My grandparents, early 20s. You know, their forefathers, early 20s, teenage years. It was the way it was done. Young, horny, want to get laid. The only way you're going to do that is if you get married, the end of a shotgun. And then, okay, people got, people got into their relationships, had their children early, and then set themselves up. And then, okay, later on when things opened up with divorce and uh, society changed, a lot of those relationships ended and people went out back into the sexual market place in their 40s or 50s and started again. Okay, so like these, these are demographic realities or sociological realities that we can chart and look at and go, all right, things change throughout history. And as has been 
like brought up in moral panic at every point in history. You, you, you can go back to writings in ancient China, which talk about society falling apart because men are growing their hair long and listening to music. You know, like, well, the fall of the Roman Republic can be blamed on various types of decadence. And all, like all throughout history, people were re- very worried when things changed because by nature, humans are kind of conservative in the sense that they find stuff that works for them, they settle into it, and then things that are outside of that or contrary to that are threats and a lot of people don't want to change. This, this is what I've seen over the last, since like the early 2010s, is that within the seduction community, which I wouldn't really call it exactly a community, but like it's a, it's a sphere of ideas. There are some communities within it, but there's also a lot of competition and fighting and infighting, as you would know if you watched any of the red pill dramas uh, on other channels. But I remember the, like the early days of pickup were completely apolitical. Like not political in any way. They they weren't really sociological either. They didn't like look at broad trends and place meaning and blame on certain groups based around that. It was dudes, mostly nerds, myself included, you know, like guys who were not the cool guys, trying to figure out how to get laid. That was it. <laughs> it was like, don't get laid, or I, I can't get girls, or not regularly, or I haven't been hadn't had a girlfriend in years, whatever. What's some things that I can do, say, be think, feel, whatever it takes in order for me to be more attractive for women, to women, and for uh, me to be able to have actionable steps and skills and things that I can do that can change those outcomes. So, yeah, like I remember those times, it's kind of an, an, an innocent period, essentially, where it was guys coming in with a lot of enthusiasm because there, there, there was this new change in, in our reality. We perceived ourselves as undateable to some degree, or we perceived ourselves as left out, like not part of the cool groups, didn't get invited to the to the right parties, you know, couldn't really get into the cool clubs. I remember thinking of what I perceived as like very beautiful women at the time as being like they're inside a fish tank, like or or I was inside a fish tank. Like just watching these people go by, like I'm they're there on the street. I could reach out and say something, but we're worlds apart. Like, there's no way that that girl is ever going to come into my social circle. That girl's never going to come to a party that I'd be invited to. You know, I wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would let me in as the mem- as its members, that the old Oscar Wilde quote. Yeah, it was, it, and you didn't feel approach anxiety. You just felt like, nah, that sucks. You know, I'm left out. And pickup was this m- kind of magical paradigm changer because for the first time in, in our lives, like there was a time before pickup, I remember it. It was just like women were like Haley's Comet, hot girls. They would like pass through your social circle once in a blue moon and, you know, you, everyone's jostling over and then no one gets her and then she ends up dating someone from the from the next school who was a cool DJ or something. You're like, ah, damn it. That's my, now I have to wait for another year to meet a pretty girl through some chance or some uh, something to do with my extended social network. The paradigm shift of going, well, you could just walk up to her and say hello. Now, then all of the arguments and all the debates was always about, well, then the direct versus indirect and should you, you know, voice your interest in the girl or not and this, this opener versus that opener. And that's where all the politics and, like, arguments happened. And I miss those days when it was, you know, dating coaches arguing about whether which of their openers were better, which was cool because it was, it was like, I think of it like those, you know, periods in, in music, like when the Rolling Stones and the Beatles had all this competition, right, and so they were trying to one-up each other prove who was the better band. And as a result, both bands made awesome fucking music trying to, trying to um, one-up each other over many years. And that was happening in the, in the early pickup scenes in the, 
was it like, yeah, 2006 through to 2012 or 14 or something like that, when I was very active in the scene, speaking at a lot of events, traveling the world, meeting all the different uh, players in the scene, very interesting, funny, wild characters. Um, you know, some of them I would say were total scammers and just grifting off the, off the wave of like lonely men trying to meet women. But many others were, even if I didn't agree with their techniques, were like purists. Like that was, that was really important to them was figuring out what works better and improving their craft and then obviously marketing and selling it. And it became, it became a monetized industry fairly quickly as well. But a lot of those early players were sincere in their, in their uh, desire to be good at this and their desire to pass on what they perceive to be the best techniques. And so, you know, this started a global movement, still, I mean, small in comparison to, I guess, many other global movements, but it was all around the world. There were millions of men who had this in their mind and I don't know how many actually went out and tried, but it would be, you know, it would be a million at least. There was a lot of men doing this in those early days. And then things started to shift. I've seen it particularly in the last four or five years. I know a lot of it's been kind of backlash against, you know, Me Too movement, third wave feminism, lots of political things, right versus left divide. A lot, a lot of this stuff ends up becoming ideological. And when you trace it back, it really becomes right, left divide. So the pickup movement got hijacked by gender politics, got hijacked by you know, all of these, let's say, sociological themes that were being discussed uh, in the manosphere and the internet in general. And a bunch of ideas appeared out of that. And one, and like, I think some of them are, you know, based in, in reality, like there definitely is a skewing or a, or an imbalance in the way that beauty pools or how it is distributed to men, because we're always talking about beautiful young women, right? Like when, when we're talking about the distribution of like guys getting to date women, it's not really about like dare I say, fives with fives, six with sixes, twos with twos or whatever, and that that's, that's unfairly distributed. It's more that most guys want to date women that they perceive to be very beautiful or that most men perceive to be beautiful in the consensus. There's less of them than there is the other types of women, and all men are interested in the hot ones, and so there's a lot of competition for what would be considered the top 20% of women. Certainly, when I was growing up in the 90s, there wasn't like... Seeing the really beautiful woman was rare and she was usually plucked by the cooler guy within the scene, right? Like she wasn't on a jet in the Maldives. She wasn't, uh, you know, bouncing around the world, let's say, you know, trading her beauty to the highest bidder of whatever type. She wasn't having rock stars and rappers and cool dudes from other cities sliding into her DMs and inviting her to come to this after party at this other city and so on. That didn't exist. It was much more localized, right? So... It meant that the super hot girls, which you only ever saw a half a dozen of them in your high school years or in your, you know, over your college years or whatever, they were pretty rare and they tended to be, okay, paired off with whatever was considered to be the cooler guys within, within those, those scenes. And then there was this distribution down of like, okay, other different types of women would hook up with the, you know, it went down the scale, right? We know what I'm talking about here. Absolutely. With the advent of Instagram, OnlyFans, sugar date, sugar baby websites, ease of travel, social media in general, plus that like people do way less, especially like younger generations, do way less social things. They ju- they're not just going out and hanging out in the park or going to, to bars or having house parties or, uh, you know, hanging around at the, at the skate park or down in the city centre like we used to. We should just go to Civic 
was the center of Canberra, not a cool city, but that's where you'd hang out and, you know, smoke a CE and like look at the girls who'd come to watch the skaters. And then occasionally, you know, you might go over and just, or someone might know someone, you might go and start a conversation because someone knew someone. And, you know, so you would still meet women out in broad social scenes, even if you weren't super cool. I was not a cool guy. I was just average, you know, I wasn't in any way have high status. I was considered average on most metrics. Um, but me and all my friends who were the same, we just, we did meet women. Weren't the hottest ones. None of us got to date a 10, but you know, we'd hook up because there were things where men and women met up with each other. Girls and boys met up and we were both horny and eventually people hooked up in some way or another. A lot of that has changed. Yeah, there's, I mean, I deal with men all the time who spend the vast majority of their time in front of screens, whether that's for work or study or entertainment. You know, they might go to a job where they work eight to 10 hours in front of a screen. Come, and even if they're super disciplined, go to the gym, you know, go and see a friend, go to a class or something, uh, and then come back home, spend an hour on YouTube, and then go to bed. Like their FaceTime with people in general, let alone hot women that they're trying to su- seduce, is extremely small. And this is where we start looping around to the squeeze. Because like, what do we mean by this? We mean your ability, well, the ability to meet women, like so how to, you know, to actually bring in numbers of women into your life, and then the proficiency of that. How good am I at communicating with women? How charming? How seductive? Can I escalate on a woman? Can I verbalize my intention? Can I go in for a kiss? Uh, Can I ask a woman out? Can I have a conversation with her that doesn't bore her or make her feel weirded out? Do women feel kind of comfortable around me in general? Does she perceive me as a man who's good with women and therefore she feels more safe and aroused around me because it's clear in my interactions with women or my reputation perhaps or just the way that I look at her and the way I treat her and touch her that I know what I'm doing. And therefore, if I know what I'm doing, it's going to be good for her, right? This is like, we really have to look at this. Like women, women are not choosing men from evil intentions, right? To, to, to make the incels or to make the, the lower 80% feel awful about themselves. And they're not just throwing themselves at the 20% of chads because they feel worthless and they're trying to prove themselves to the alpha males or something like that. It's far too reductive and takes out the, takes out the humanity of it. It's like w- women are attracted to who makes them feel sexy, feel good, feel heard uh, and seen as a, as a human being, right? They're like, it's the way that the man makes her feel that determines whether she wants to be with him sexually. And that is not the sole um, monopoly of GQ models who are 30 years old with washboard abs who have high status because they go to certain clubs and hold up expensive bottles of champagne with two girls kissing them on the cheek. Right, like, okay, that's that's a snapshot of a particular type of archetype, but and and of course, some women will be attracted to that, and and more women will be attracted to that than the guy you know with a neck beard who stays at home watching World of Warcraft. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so it's it's that that these two extremes are, are more likely to elicit different responses, but it's not that simple. It's not just like this arbitrary cutoff line. Women date all sorts of types of men in terms of the way that they look and the way they dress and the way they height, their, their, their height and so on. Absolutely, there are certain advantages. Being a, like a very short man is a massive disadvantage in the dating world. I've, I've seen that, charted that scientifically by taking thousands of guys out on the street. And I see that a much taller, better looking guy gets better responses and it's easier for him. But I've taught, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of shorter average to less than average looking guys and they can get results absolutely they do get results it's just that they might have to do more reps in order to in order to get the same results is that fair 
nah. It's this, but it's the same kind of thing of like, if I'm born with a daddy whose net worth is 10 million and he puts 500 grand into my first business idea, I'm not self-made, right? I, and no matter how big I get, I was never self-made. I had a massive leg up because that first 500K or whatever is the hardest to get. And so, you know, the guy that starts with literally zero and builds up a business uh, had, to, had to work way, way harder than the person that was given certain legs up with contacts or finances or investment from their family or from their connections. Is it still worth it for the guy to start from zero? Uh, is it worth the squeeze if he, if he becomes successful? I think so, absolutely. And there's a different type of like confidence and pride that you get from being self-made. I consider myself self-made. I didn't come from absolute poverty, uh, but I came from a very poor comparative family. I, I was never given any investment or leg up, right? So like I had to build it from scratch. And I've met many clients and, and had friends who had massive legs up and they're worth way more than me. And I know it's primarily because of the, the leg up that they got. And a lot of them don't feel as self-made or as proud or as strong probably as I do because I know it came from zero. So it's still worth squeeze, right? Because what's, what was my alternative was going, well, I wasn't born rich. I don't have any of those connections. It's not fair because wealth is distributed unfairly. I mean, it's not fair. Okay, there's a case for that. Absolutely. And, you know, then I could... I could move into a certain ideology, hardcore, I don't know, Marxism or socialism or something, which defines that and sets and gives me an excuse and a reason never to change and never to move out of that. And there would be justifications. There is, there is data that could back it up. There is, you know, an ideology and reasons and you could, you could make a strong case for why it's not worth the squeeze. But I personally think it is for the individual whether it's on society levels. Okay. That's a different story, but for the individual, it's worth it because you get to, dig yourself out of poverty and make yourself into something amazing and hopefully build wealth and freedom. And that's the reason that I'm interested in wealth is because it gives you freedom and choice. Thanks so much for listening to the Natural Natural Lifestyles Podcast. Podcast. Check us out on YouTube at The The Natural Natural TV. TV. See you on the next episode.